family. Welcome to the teaching for this week. If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is John, and I have the great privilege of being the pastor here at Reality. We are in a series on prayer, where we're looking at the practices and vision of prayer in the Bible in order that we might join in and grow our lives of communion with God. As I said last week, when we think of our lives of prayer, though oftentimes we can feel guilt or shame, because we read about these passages, and maybe that's what's happening in the series. You hear about these lives of prayer and the call to prayer in the Bible and the prayer life of Jesus and all these great saints. And then we look at our own life, and it falls so short if we're even praying, managing to have a little bit of a prayer time at all. And as I said, I think there's three reasons why our prayer lives fall short when I examine my own life and as I talk to other people. The first is that we don't create time for prayer. Uh, and we address this in our Rule of Life series, which we did in the last year. So I encourage you to go back and look at that series if you think this is your main issue, time management. Um, and you can kind of listen to some of the vision for the series, but there's also one specific sermon on creating space for prayer in your life. The second reason is that we don't have a vision for prayer. Last week, I addressed a little bit of that, that encouraging us to, to understand when we're praying, we're coming into the presence of the living God. We're not just shouting words to no one. And even if that's what it feels like, that we are called to take that perspective uh, to God and to be invited into his presence. And then to change our perspective on prayer, that it's not simple cause and effect. We're not asking, how can I say the right things or do the right things in order that God will act in the world? But instead, we are called to partnership with God, to learn his story and to walk into his story and to participate with him in, in that story in the world by becoming more like Jesus ourselves and calling him to act in our world. So I hope that gave you a bit of vision for what prayer is. But the third reason, as I mentioned last week, is that we don't know how to pray. Maybe you are a new follower of Jesus and you just have no clue what to do. Maybe you're in a rut in your prayer life, that you have had great practices of prayer at some point in time, but those things aren't working right now. So the part of the series, as I said, is practical to help us develop a prayer life. So today we're going to do something slightly different than what we usually do. And I'm going to take this time to lead us through a practice of prayer, uh, to learn a new, maybe what for some of you is a new uh, way of, of taking time to be with God. So a couple things before we get started, since this is new, just to help us guide our time and make the most of it. The first is I encourage you to grab something to write with, whether that be a pen and pencil uh, and a piece of paper or a book or whatever you have. If you have a prayer journal, that's great. We also have an outline for this time as we do for every sermon online. So you can grab, go print one of those off and grab it. The second thing is to minimize a distraction. Uh, some of you may be listening to this on the bus or riding a bike or, you know, with kids running around your home. So it may not be possible for you to completely minimize distraction. That's okay. We're glad to have you and hope that you can, um, that you will take something from this time. But if you can, I encourage you to minimize the distraction in your uh, immediate area. So put your phone into another room. Uh, if there are things in the room that are bothering you with clutter or whatever, take, just pause the video, take a few minutes, clean them up. Uh, or things that are distracting you. If there's a TV on somewhere else, uh, whatever those things are, just minimize distraction in your life for about 20, 30 minutes so that you can take part in this prayer time. Finally, if you're watching or listening with a roommate or a family member, or you are an extroverted person, I encourage you to take some, uh, to find someone to share this with. So I'll be leading us through a few steps of prayer. And at the end of those times, you can um, take some time to share uh, what you're learning with the other person and pray together. 
So there's going to be four sections to our prayer time, um, and each section will have two or three steps. The first is I'll explain what we're doing in prayer. Then I'll invite you to engage in that step of prayer and share with each other. And then I will draw us back together. So the first step of prayer. Uh, so if any of those things um, uh, are things that you want to do or need to do, just take a pause to this video right now and then come back when you're ready and I'll lead us through our time together. The first step of prayer is to welcome God and just come into his presence. Uh, as we talked about last week, um, we, we need to remind ourselves that God is here and present with us, that he longs to be with us, and, and by the grace of Jesus, he has made a way that we can come into his presence. So I encourage you to take a few minutes just to do that. And I'll, I'll, two ways that I like to do this is, one, I can close my eyes um, to pray. And I, I like to, of course, I don't know what the face of God or person of God looks like. So I kind of imagine myself walking towards God, just leaving behind some of the things that, you know, the to-do list, uh, the different things that are going on in my mind, the different questions that I have, and walking towards God, even though he's present with me, that he wants to be there, that I'm just taking a few steps uh, towards him. And you could picture the cross if there's something physical you need to picture there. Uh, or in the Bible, it's sometimes called the mountain of God, that we're ascending the mountain of God. So just taking some steps mentally towards the presence of God and preparing yourself for prayer. The second option that you can do is to pray with your eyes open. Um, and uh, as you, if you remember back to our series in Genesis 1, God says he's created everything and he's created it good, that this world is designed to be a temple for him. So even if you're near a window, just go and look at some of the trees or the greenery and um, praise God that he is here. Praise God that he longs to be present with, with us and, and remind yourself that his creation speaks of his present presence. So take a few minutes to do that. You can do it on your own or if you're with someone else, do it together and pause the video and come back when you're ready to enter the next step. The prayer that I'm going to lead us through is a prayer of examine. It's an ancient prayer practice, but it may be new to you. So I want to take a few minutes to describe what we're doing. The prayer of examine is a set of introspective prompts that invites us to look at our own lives uh, in the presence of God. So it's a reflective type of prayer where we examine ourselves and our hearts through the lens of the gospel. And we're going to be prompted today through a passage from the gospel of Mark. Uh, Jesus, as many have noticed, he's the master of asking questions. One person uh, that counted them said there's over 300 times that Jesus asks questions in the gospel. And he asks a really great one in Mark chapter 10. He says, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? So I'd like you to take a few minutes and just hear in the presence of God, Jesus asking you that question. What do you want me to do for you? And jot down your answers. Please be honest. Uh, this isn't a time to try to say what, what should Jesus, like what's the cheat code here? What should I be answering? But just to be honest, as you hear him asking that question, what would you say in response? Be non-judgmental about your answers. Just write down the first things that come to mind and list them. As Jesus says, what can I do for you? So take a few minutes to do that on your own. And then uh, when you're ready, you can unpause the video and we'll continue. Welcome back. One of the reasons this question, what do you want me to do for you, stood out to me uh, in my reading of, 
of Mark is because Jesus asked this question to two people back to back. He asked the question twice. And it's basic Bible reading that whenever you see a word or a theme, or in this case, a question that's repeated, we should pay attention to it and, and uh, look into it more deeply. It's an invitation for us. So let's do that. Let's take a look at the passages where Jesus asks this question quickly. So Mark 10, starting in verse 35, this is the first time Jesus asks the question. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they're two of Jesus' disciples, approached him and said, teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask you. A very bold request. What do you want me to do for you? He asked them. They answered him, allow us to sit at your right and your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We are able, they told him. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left is not mine to give. Indeed, it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the 10 disciples heard this, the other disciples, they began to be indignant with James and John. They're probably unhappy that they didn't think to first ask this question. So Jesus called them over and said to them, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. On the contrary, this great invitation of Jesus to live in a different way. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you will be slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. I'll try not to preach through this. So just a couple things. There's a, great, there's a great passage and maybe you do want to spend some time reflecting on it. But for our prayer time, just a couple things I want us to notice. First, the request of the brothers. Um, not only is it super bold, but they're not editing anything out. They feel free to come to Jesus, even though their request is somewhat inappropriate uh, or wrongly directed, they still come with Jesus. And again, it's this, this I want to point it out, it is, there's no need for us to pre-edit our prayers. When, as we saw last week when we looked at Psalm 10, just to come into Jesus' presence and to be open and honest. Now, the, the basic request that these disciples have is for glory. They're asking Jesus to give them the favored positions in his kingdom, or some commentators say to sit at the right and the left hand, the honored positions uh, in the banquet of God in his kingdom. Now, this is deeply ironic. If you remember uh, our study in the Gospel of Mark, there, Jesus at the beginning is on this trajectory where he's going around and he's healing people and people are getting super excited because the, the king is finally here and he, they think he's, he's going to liberate Israel and bring them back to power. So they're living in this story of hope and restoration uh, in a political sense. But in the second half of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus starts this path of downward mobility and he tells his disciples he's going to suffer and die. That he's, he is the king and he is the, the, the God of the universe, but he is also the suffering servant who has come to give his life for many. And uh, the, the disciples show that their hearts are still set on the first part of that story. They're fixated on the hero story and taking their places of honor and glory. But again, look at the patience of Jesus here. He doesn't yell at them. He doesn't tell them like, you idiots, this is the third time that I've told you that I'm going to die and you're still worried about positions of honor and glory. And instead he invites them to serve. He corrects their story to his. And so our prayers don't need to be edited, but they need to be open to the correction of Jesus. 
Another way of saying this is what we said last week, that your perspective may be off. So we have to come and hear this on the contrary of Jesus. That the, the, we can ask anything that we want, but he's inviting us into his story, if you remember from last week, and to walk into his presence and learn to live in the story that he's already started. So he says to the disciples, you will receive honor and glory. That is, that is coming for you, but it's not going to happen in the way that you think. So that's the first time Jesus asks this question. He asks it to the disciples and there's something we can learn there. But let's take a look at the second time he asks it just a few verses later. They came to Jericho, so Jesus and the disciples. As, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a large crowd, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the road. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many warned him to keep quiet, but he was crying out all the more, have mercy on me, son of David. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called the blind man and he said, and said to him, have courage, get up, he's calling for you. So he threw off his coat, jumped up and came to Jesus. A very similar reaction to many people uh, who are on the path of downward mobility when they meet Jesus. They throw off, they run to Jesus, they leave everything. Jesus answered him, what do you want me to do for you? Rabboni, teacher, the blind man said to him, I want to see. Jesus said to him, go, your faith has saved you. Immediately he could see and began to follow Jesus on the road. This is verse 46 to 52. Again, I'm going to try not to preach, but just to point out a few things for our prayer time and talk about how this has affected my life. There's similarities and differences between these two stories. The, the blind beggar also makes a request, just like the disciples did, and it's honest and it's unedited and it's bold in the presence of Jesus. But the request is not a request for glory. Rather, it's a request for mercy. He's begging God to have compassion on him. And so it's a fundamentally different one and Jesus answers his prayer. So as I reflected on this, I wanted to tell you a little bit about how it impacted my own life. Um, I, in, in the past year, I've realized as I prayed, as I've listened to my response to Jesus' question, what do you want me to do for you? That a lot of my answers are glory type of prayers. Even as I prayed for our time together today and uh, for our uh, service on Sunday, the prayers that come to mind as I, as I think about preaching this is, God, would you please help this to be really great? Would people be impacted by this prayer? Would they not think that this is too weird since it's not something we normally do? Or would people think that I'm an okay leader? Would this reflect well on me? This is the true heart if I'm just being honest and open about the things when I hear Jesus say, what do you want from me? These are the things that flow out. And they're glory-based prayers. They're really... A question um, requests for me to be brought up a peg. And they're often more characteristic than prayers of mercy that the second that the blind beggar um, asks, which would be prayers like, God, would you please open my eyes? The places where I'm blind and I don't see you, would you, would you correct me? Would you help me to live my life on the contrary? Or would you help to open our eyes to the, your presence with us and to your mercy towards us? Or would you open people's eyes in the world, in my sphere of relationships who don't know you? Would you have mercy on them, God, I beg you? And that's less characteristic of my prayer life when I looked at the list that I created. So now I invite you to do the same thing, again, in the spirit of examine, 
is just to look at your list and honestly and non-judgmentally, if you have to categorize, which, are, which is more true of, of your prayers? Are they more glory type of prayers? Trying to get you up the social ladder, maybe upward mobility? Or are they prayers of mercy? And again, not trying to um, edit anything at all or to make you feel shame or guilt, just non-judgmental noticing at this point. What is the general tone of your prayers? So do that for a couple minutes and then um, pause the video, do that, and then come back when you're ready. So as you reflect on the prayers and you look at your list with now the, the idea of them being glory prayers or mercy prayers, are there new prayers that emerge from your life? Are there new things that come to mind? As I said, when I looked at my prayer list, they're often prayers for glory. God, would this be a great time? Would people think that I'm a good preacher or a leader? And it invites me to turn my eyes away from myself and instead coming into the presence of God to learn to pray these prayers of mercy. So I encourage you to take a few minutes to do that yourself. Are there new prayers that emerge in this time that you want to pray to God? Um, and then take a few minutes if you're with someone else to share that with them. So pause the video and come back when you're ready to go into our final step together. I hope that was helpful for you. Um, and again, the goal here is not to heap more guilt or shame about us onto our prayer life. As I said, many of us feel that way already, but instead to hear the invitation of Jesus, that he is inviting us to bring all of ourselves to him, but also to correct us and to teach us how to pray along with his story of mercy that he is starting in the world and the glory and honor that he does in his great kindness to us bestow on us. But he does that through a, a dead, a dying and dead and resurrected savior, that that's how we partake in his honor and glory. So as we close out our time, I just want to focus and reflect a little bit more on the mercy of God. And to do that, I'm going to just read a long passage for us from the Tyndale Bible Commentary, which probably does sound really dry, but I found this to just expand my categories of what I think of when I think of the mercy of God. So I'm going to lead us through that, uh, read it for us, and then encourage you for the last step of prayer. <clears throat> mercy is a divine quality by which God faithfully keeps his promises and maintains his covenant relationship with his chosen people despite their unworthiness and unfaithfulness. The biblical meaning of mercy is exceedingly rich and complex. There are many synonyms employed in the translation to express the dimensions of meaning involved, such as kindness, loving kindness, goodness, grace, favor, pity, compassion, and steadfast love, all characters of God. Prominent in the concept of mercy is the compassionate disposition to forgive offenders or adversaries and to help or spare them from their sorry plight. In the heart of the concept of mercy is the love of God, which is freely manifested in his gracious saving acts on behalf of those whom he has pledged himself in covenant relationship. God persistently puts up with his disobedient and wayward people and continuously seeks them out to draw them back to himself. The psalmist describes God as a father who takes pity on his children, who revere him and trust him. Hosea pictures God as a loving father who looks down from the heavens with a yearning heart of compassion upon his rebellious and wayward people. Isaiah depicts God as a mother who has compassion on the son of her womb. 
because of what Israel as a covenant nation had learned about the steadfast love and faithfulness of God, devout Jews instinctively lifted their voices in petition for divine mercy and forgiveness in times of need, eloquently expressed in the penitential Psalms, as well as other Old Testament passages. It is a remembrance of God's mercy that, uh, of God's mercy that gives the repentant person the hope and assurance of divine favor and of reconciliation with the offended Lord. In the New Testament, a very descriptive Greek word is used for God's mercy towards the needy. It expresses his pity and compassion by means of an intense verb literally translated to be moved in one's bowels. The Hebrews regarded the bowels as the center of the affections, especially that of the most tender kindness. Jesus was described as being deeply moved in his inner feeling of benevolence towards the needy and spontaneously acting to relieve their suffering to heal, to raise the dead, and to feed the hungry. The most characteristic use of mercy in the New Testament is that of God's provision of salvation for mankind in Jesus Christ. God is the Father of mercies, which he bestows on those who believe in his Son. It is because he is so rich in mercy that he has saved those who are spiritually dead and doomed by their sins. It's out of God's mercy that we are forgiven and granted eternal life. Because God has freely extended his mercy, irrespective of worthiness or faithfulness, people are to respond by showing mercy to others, even though they do not deserve it or seek it. Indeed, people are commanded to be merciful, especially to the poor, the needy, widows, and orphans, the quartet of the vulnerable in the Old Testament. God regards mercy more than the ritual sacri or more than ritual sacrifice. God's mercy in Christ actually puts people under obligation to act towards others as God himself has acted toward them. The Lord made a mercy a foundation for his teaching. His coming was anticipated and announced in the context of mercy that would characterize his mission. Members of the Christian church are to show compassion and practical concern for each other. They are to give aid and relief, love and comfort to one another as Christ freely gave to them in their need. The Apostle James teaches the essential nature of such good works as being of the very essence of genuine faith. It was the mercy that the good Samaritan had towards the man who was beaten and robbed that, singled out, that was singled out by the Lord for special commendation. To be full of mercy is a distinguishing virtue of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Praise God, he is a God of mercy. And praise God, he invites us to join him on the journey of showing this mercy, the great, amazing, overflowing mercy of God to our world. So in closing, I want you to take a couple minutes, either by yourself or with your prayer partner, just to um, pray through these prayers of mercy in response. I encourage you to thank God for his mercy uh, that he's shown to the world, but also most importantly to each of us in Christ. And I encourage you to pray that you would become a person who shows this mercy. And maybe there might be one, I encourage you to just ask one thing. What's one way this week that I can show mercy to someone else? Is there a practical thing that God's asking me to do? And, and if you have a request that you uh, would like to pass on, I encourage you to email elders at realityvancouver.com. If there's an area in your need, uh, or in your life that you need mercy and for people to come around you, may we do that in prayer and in practical ways. Um, so I encourage you to humble yourself and allow us to, to participate in God's story by caring for you or as a brother or sister in that way. So 
We'll end here. I encourage you to pause, to stop, to take a few minutes to praise God for his mercy and pray prayers for mercy and to become people of mercy in our world.